Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I want to start off this week just describing the programs. We're going to be talking about messenger uh, RNA a little bit because of uh, the incredible uh, Nobel Prize Award, and more about that in a moment. I'm also going to give you an information about an ancient Egyptian pregnancy test that is safe for the kids to try at home, and why hospital cafeterias have learned never say vegan, and much, much more, including answers. Answer your question on the air the following week, and that's what I'm going to do right now for Gary in San Jose. Gary writes, in probably reference to the last week's program where we talked a lot about these topics, what fat to take with vitamin K2 and K3. Uh, Gary says, I've often heard it stated that vitamin K2 will be better absorbed when taken along with some fat. How much fat? And isn't an accompaniment of four fish oil capsules sufficient? Thanks. Well, Gary... Let me just step back a moment and say that vitamin K, vitamin D, vitamin E uh, all belong to a category of vitamins called fat-soluble vitamins, which is exactly what they sound like. If uh, you're going to mix salad dressing and you mix oil and vinegar, you may have noticed that they separate. Well, vitamins separate too in the stomach, and some being water-soluble will uh, be well, most of them, B12 being exception, will be fairly readily absorbed. The ones that are fat, you know, mostly what you're dealing with is an acid bath and saliva and stuff that's water-soluble in there along with the food. And so uh, the fat forms little bubbles, and I should say medium-sized bubbles. The body can only absorb tiny bubbles. So it is after the food leaves the stomach and dumps into the small intestine that the gallbladder and the pancreas send in, basically, respectively, an emulsifier called bile and some in, some fat-degrading enzymes called lipases, and they tur- and they, that turns the vi- the vitamins and case of our discussion, into tiny bubbles, which can then be directly absorbed and dumped into the lymphatics and eventually make their way into the bloodstream. In fact, if you've ever cheated on one of those blood tests, you know, where they say you have to be fasting, uh, what and you're not, and you've had any fat at all, when they draw your blood, there's actually a layer of fat on the centrifuge. We call that lipemia. And either you cheated on your fasting or you have a hereditary disease that prevents you from dissolve, from getting rid of fat and you make and, and you accumulate it in your bloodstream. Basically, if it, if it says fasting blood test, do fast because you're going to have to do it again. Uh, getting back to your question, it doesn't take that much fat in the stuff dumping into the smaller in, in the small intestine to stimulate the letdown of bile and fat. So I think four fish oil capsules is more than enough to for the body to identify that it's going to have to put some uh, some bile in there and some 
uh, other things that will help break up that fat and emulsify it, essentially detergent. The body makes its own detergents or emulsifiers. And if you buy, if you make your own salad dressing, you know my, about my problem. When you buy a packaged salad dressing, those are full of emulsifiers for the most part. And actually, emulsifiers are not that healthy for you. The ones you make are, but the commercial ones do tend to break up some of the protective mucus. So in functional medicine, we'll often say if you eat a lot of foods with emulsifiers in them, you're more likely to develop some food sensitivities or maybe develop the leakage of bacterial antigens across the gut because that mucus layer is missing. So kind of an interesting uh, little wander on the subject. So let's talk Nobel Prize. Uh, This week, Catalin Carico and Drew Weissman uh, of the University of... Now, this one I'm going to have trouble with. uh, How do you pronounce an S-Z? I'm going to go with Zeged Hungary, uh, with apologies if I didn't pronounce that correctly. They won the Nobel Prize for work that they did back in the 2000s. I want to take a moment and just appreciate these two heroes who persevered for years in their laboratories without much funding and with a whole lot of other scientists looking down their nose at them because they were, you know, nobody really believed in messenger RNA as a therapeutic technique. They persevered and they transformed medical science. Well, here's a little bit about what comes next. Let's start with looking back. That mRNA vaccines were first released in 2020. The world was in the middle of a global pandemic, and these vaccines have saved literally millions of lives and, again, became the subject of a Nobel Prize. Pretty heavy-duty stuff happening really quickly. But mRNA-based medicine is gonna, has got real legs. It's going somewhere. To quote Matthias Stefan, who's an immunologist in Seattle, Washington, for whatever you want to correct or whatever you want to treat, there could be an mRNA medicine. That's the excitement. So here's some things that Nature reported this week about mRNA medicines that are on the horizon. Well, look, we'll start talking with talking about vaccines because vaccines used to take a long time to make months to years, at a minimum, usually years. And this approach allows people to make a potently effective vaccine in a couple of weeks, from development to production to distribution. It's the distribution rather than the development that's going to be the bottleneck here. The reason they're so different is that there isn't a protein to show the immune system and wave in front of them and let the process of making antibodies eventually work. Generally, you're showing the protein to the immune system, and you're also giving something that irritates the immune system so that it pays attention to this protein you're showing it that it's never seen before and is not attached to a pathogen as it normally would be with natural infection. But what this does is it delivers the blueprint, if you will, that tells the person's own body cells to make copies of the viral protein. These viral antigens 
stimulate the immune system automatically because they are foreign. The immune system recognizes that, makes antibodies against them, and T cells and other virus-fighting immune cells uh, are produced in a sort of second wave. And this can be designed and manufactured in days. This means we can reformulate vaccines. We can turn on a dime, literally, and reformulate them every year when you have a fast-evolving virus like influenza or, for that matter, SARS-CoV-2, which is still in its adaptive radiation phase, very rapidly evolving, uh, but slowing, not slowing down as much as we'd like, but definitely slowing down at this point. Uh, but it can also be deployed as a rapid response tool. So, for example, Moderna, which makes an mRNA vaccine and has been the benefit of uh, has benefited from a great amount of government money that was thrown at letting them amplify their business. Uh, kind of the buy Apple stock in 1980 uh, version, if you actually bought into that, not that I'm giving you stock tips or anything, but they've got mRNA vaccines coming against monkeypox, which Zika and the Nipah virus, which honestly I don't even know about and can't tell you about because I didn't have time to look it up. Uh, they also have a vaccine that's under review by the FDA for respiratory syncytial virus. But as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, unclear whether who's going to win because two protein-based vaccines have already gotten FDA approval and are being offered and promoted as we speak by the respect their respective companies. But there are viruses that we've never been able to crack. A good example for that is CMV, cytomegalovirus. Now, this is a nasty virus. It causes hepatitis. It causes a mono-like syndrome. Uh, it causes birth defects in infants. It's one of the one, it's one of the torch uh, viruses that are known to cause birth defects in humans. Uh, toxoplasmosis being another one of them, and it causes deadly infections in people who are immunocompromised. And of course, we have more and more transplant recipients who remain at high risk for this and could really use a vaccine. Why is it so difficult? Well, CMV uses a bundle of five proteins, five uh, spike proteins, if you will, to get into and get out of human cells. And this is a very difficult antigen configuration to replicate in order to create a protein-based vaccine. You would have to build this complex five-protein molecule uh, in a lab. You'd have to get it to self-assemble, and then you'd have to, uh, then you'd have to mass-produce it. This is a tall order. But with the mRNA, the researchers don't have to do any of that. They simply provide the genetic blueprint, get that into the cell. Our cells themselves produce the five proteins, and our cells then edit the five proteins and assemble them uh, exactly the way they're supposed to be put together because it's essentially replicating what happens with a natural infection, which hijacks our body, our body's own cellular factory to make more copies of the virus. Well, now we're just making more copies of a part of the virus, and then the natural immune reaction happens. Now, this is still in... Uh, early trials, but it's in phase three trials, and it appears to be stimulating a strong immune response 
in some tissues, maybe even stronger than the, the natural infection response, which is intriguing. And the implications for that I'm, I'm not clear on. But it's not just infectious disease, folks, because the next big thing for sure is mRNA cancer vaccines. Now, we've been trying for cancer vaccines for a long time, a vaccine that could be trained to, that could be used to train the human system to fight tumors. But we haven't been able to make anything sufficiently specific, and it's taken too long to to make it because malignant cells mutate rapidly. And so they, the, uh, the target essentially loses focus rapidly because of the rapid mutation. But with messenger RNA, they can develop a cancer vaccine that, does, that targets dozens of different antigens on a tumor cell simultaneously. And it's a shotgun approach, right? If you hit several targets at once, it's going to be very hard for those cancer cells through just minor genetic variation that is going to occur more rapidly in cancer cells because they're growing rapidly and their cellular editing uh, apparatus has been destroyed. Uh, they are not going to be able to evolve away from the cancer vaccine as well. And it also opens up the door to a, an entirely new concept. Now, we have CART T-cells, which is CART, uh, CART therapy. And what that is is you take T-cells out of a person's blood that belong to them, and you train them against the cancer, and then you put them back into the person. And that takes weeks to to do, but it's really a fundamentally new technology. This even leapfrogs over that because using mRNA, you could make these vaccines much more rapidly. And the CART T cells, we wouldn't have to take them out of the body. They would form, the T cells that were directed at the antigen would form automatically just as part of a normal result, the vaccination process. We could literally collect uh, mutate, collect a mutated uh, slurry from someone's own tumor and use that to amplify certain RNAs that were present in the tumor and not present in normal cells and literally make a personalized tumor vaccine. And it's not just vaccines because... Moderna is also working on therapies that deliver mRNA instructions for making cytokines. These are the immune-stimulating molecules like IL-6 and IL-10. I will also add that this is promising for uh, autoimmune disease because we see upregulation of certain uh, cytokines in autoimmune disease and being able to up in being able to inject the information to make the the suppressor cytokines that turn down inflammation could be just a really massive therapeutic that would be much less likely to to globally affect the immune system we'd be able to target it to reduce the rheumatoid arthritis, to reduce the lupus without making that individual more vulnerable to a broad, to the broad spectrum of infections that we confront every day. So one of the problems or challenges with working with messenger RNA is unlike DNA, which has, which has two, two molecules essentially that are tied together by cross bridges and therefore it's as stable as a ladder, uh, 
messenger RNA is is just a twisty string of pearls, and it spins on itself on all of the link on all of the bonds that are connecting the nucleotides. So it degrades really rapidly. It's very vulnerable to temperature changes, for example. That that's one of these. It's one of those cases where it's not a bug; it's a feature, because you can use that fleeting nature to its advantage. We can, for example, make CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing tools. Uh, we don't want to. We we don't want to cut the DNA. We can cut the RNA and shuttle instructions for making enzymes into cells, and then have those instructions disappear. In other words, we can do a lightning strike and then withdraw and not end up with a lot of unintended, what do they call it in the mil- in military terminology? I believe they call it collateral damage. Well, one of the problems with CRISPR is, turns out there is collateral damage. And we're kind of funny as humans. You know, we don't want to generate 100 culls for every successful human uh, that we're trying to fix. Uh, we don't like getting we don't like the concept of that and there's also the idea of something getting loose well and doing going unintended going all unintended consequences on this well if we use messenger rna that's much less likely because it literally melts on contact with sunlight or ultraviolet radiation so let's take uh a moment and talk about ancient Egypt. Long ago, in a kingdom far away, where pyramids are built and the Nile floods every year and people walk like Egyptians, there were pregnancy tests. The Egyptian medicine was very advanced. They did brain surgery and they had a pregnancy test that worked. Uh, Modern testing of this method has shown that it works pretty well. It corrects, it correctly identifies 70 to 85% of pregnancies. What's the secret of this ancient Egyptian technique? Well, uh, you have a woman who might be pregnant simply urinate on barley and wheat seeds, and then you put them on a moist blanket and you wait to see how long they take to sprout. Turns out that if the woman is pregnant, those seeds are going to sprout very quickly, within about a week. Whereas if you water them with non-pregnant urine, they don't sprout. How about that? They take the normal amount of time as if you had gotten them wet with water. There's a hormone. There's hormones in that they're pregnant pee. And that is the secret to the ancient Egyptian pregnancy test. Personally, if then when my uh, nieces, great nieces or great nephews reach out to me and ask Auntie Dawn what they should do for their science project, I'm going to suggest the pregnant urine, uh, see if they can basically score some pregnant urine from one of their classmates' moms or their own mom and test this theory out. They can supply their own non-pregnant urine because this is probably a grade school project pre-puberty, in other words, for most of them, and we will simply see whether or not science marches on. But using 
leveraging the fact that there is hormone that will give a chemical signal in pregnant urine. Uh, researchers, this there was a German group, Ashkim and Zondekt, and in 1927, they invented the first modern pregnancy test. And they this test worked by injecting a pregnant woman's urine into sexually immature female mice, and then those mice, those um, mouse's ovaries would grow and produce eggs, and you could. They didn't have ultrasound back then, so they had to kill the mice and dissect out the ovaries. But uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, those hormones. Firstly, I'm going to talk about the menstrual cycle, a, a mystery over, probably a mystery to the Egyptians, and certainly uh, really intriguing that the average length is 28 days, which it actually is. But, of course, there's a variation from 24 to 32 days that's considered normal. But what's going on here? Well, at the time of menstruation, the hormone levels reset to their lowest setting. And then gradually, after, uh, after about day 10 of, uh, since the beginning of menstruation, estrogen levels start to increase. These estrogen levels are... Uh, increase because the ovaries are stimulated by the pituitary gland through an enzyme called follicle-stimulating hormones. So yes, the ovaries grow and mature a follicle, and it's a little bit of a, of a race for the follicles. The one that gets the biggest first suppresses the others, and generally you only release one egg per cycle. Uh, of course, you don't necessarily do that when you're getting fertility drugs or when you have uh, twins do tend to run in families. But coming back to these hormone signaling molecules, the rise of FSH also triggers within the pituitary the generation of a second hormone, luteinizing hormone. And luteinizing hormone causes the complete maturation of that follicle and the release of the female ovum. It, this happens with a spike of luteinizing hormone about halfway through the month. That is a hormone that HCG, the hormone of pregnancy, looks very much like, hence the effect on mice. And the level of HCG in pregnant women is extremely high, and that's why we can uh, we can do it. Just the way that once that egg leaves the follicle on the ovary, the ovary for that that empty shell for, uh, will turn into a hormone secreting organ with a lifespan of about ten days, and during that time, it puts out a lot of progesterone. And the progesterone takes the lining of the uterus and makes it ready to receive a fertilized egg should one arrive. And when that fertilized egg arrives, it starts pumping out a ton of HCG. And that HCG is what keeps the lining of the uterus from falling off. And hence, we develop very high levels of HCG very early in pregnancy, and they can be picked up in the urine. And that's why, uh, that's why this whole thing works. So Aztec, um, Ashkheim and Zondek had to actually inject five mice per woman, woman and wait about a week. And they could, and it took, it had to be about 
two weeks after the missed period before there was enough HCG to be uh, to be found. So this was an expensive test, and it really wasn't done that often. And, you know, just in contrast, up until uh, through the 1930s, women basically had to wait a month after conception, uh, go to the doctor, mail the urine to the lab, wait another week to get the result. And so they weren't done that often. And in 1931, another doctor swapped out the mice for adult rabbits who were much easier to inject. And then about 10, uh, about 10 years later, a British scientist discovered, no, why, why, why waste time with mammals? Let's use frogs. So frogs lay eggs. So you don't need to kill them or dissect them. You just need to find a female frog and inject it. And within 12 hours, that poor delusional little frog is going to start laying eggs from the influence of the HCG. Uh, and boom, you've got a pregnancy test. And tens of thousands of frogs were sacrificed on the altar of science between the 1940s and the 1960s. It still wasn't all that common to get pregnancy tests. But this all changed in the 60s when the first antibody tests came out. And they could only be done in doctor's offices. But by the early 1970s, there was a test that was sensitive enough. It was using antibodies, and it could detect pregnancy two to three weeks after conception. The antibody test used sheep blood cells. So what they would do is they'd take uh, sheep red blood cells and they would attach HCG uh, to the outside of these cells so that the cells were sort of studded with the HCG antigen. And then they would mix these blood cells with urine and HCG antibodies. Now what happens, it's basically the same thing that happens when you, when you do primitive blood typing. So if you mix, let's say, the serum from a person who is uh, type O blood, they're going to have antibodies against A and B. And so when you, when, you do, when you mix the blood in from, say, a type A or a type B, it's going to get covered with antibodies and it's going to clump. And that's how we used to do blood typing the pregnancy test works the same way. So in a situation where there's no HCG in the urine that you've added to these HCG-studded red blood cells, and then you add HCG antibodies, the antibodies are going to jump on the red blood cells and they're going to clump them. On the other hand, If the urine is from a pregnant woman, it's going to be chock full of HCG. So even though you add the antibodies, the minute that the antibodies and the soluble HCG are in the same room or in the same test tube, they're going to unite and the red blood cells will not get any antibody or not enough to cause them to clump. So we we stayed on with the soluble tests and, in fact, the first Uh, at-home pregnancy test hit the market in 1977. But this was cumbersome. It was a home test. It took 10 steps, and you had to keep the test tubes in a place where they wouldn't be vibrated for two hours, but it was 97% accurate for a positive result, and women could finally find out if they were pregnant at home. 
the current tests that we all see in the drugstores were developed in 1988. We're still using that same technology. They are 99% accurate and very sensitive. I don't know if you have seen the movie Juno, uh, which is about a pregnant teenager, but the first 10 minutes of that movie are hilarious as the poor girl tries to drink enough water so that her pregnancy test will turn negative. And no matter how much water she drinks, those two little, those two little lines are still showing up on her test. And eventually she just has to come to terms with it. It's a very funny movie, but that first scene is priceless. So I think the timing is important. This is the 70s, right? This is when women couldn't wear pants to the office. This is when uh, a magazine called Ms. came out and where women decided, you know, they didn't want to be known by their marital status as a Miss or a Mrs. Uh, All sorts of things happened in the 70s that were part of the women's liberation movement, but also part of a change in uh, women's lifestyles because women finally had control of their reproductive uh, the reproduction. And this was incredibly revolutionary because getting pregnant at the wrong time was the thing that took down many a woman in previous generations, prevented her from achieving what she wanted to achieve. And, you know, let's just say that not all pregnancies are voluntary and that uh, having both abortion available in early pregnancy and having an ability to discover that you were early pregnant was, well, it's transformed society. We've gone to, among other things, the class before me in medical school had five women. My class had 30. By the time I graduated, more than 50% of the doctors in training were women. And I watched that tide continue to this day. And I'm very proud to be to have you know been part of that number, so to speak. Well, I, next I'm going to give a shout out to the California Medical Association. Uh, I am a delegate to this year's uh, CMA. I've been a delegate for many years. Uh, this organization is way more than just a trade group for doctors. Uh, it is a social welfare organization, and they are really coming to the forefront with uh, their discussion, one of their primary topics uh, at the House of Delegates in a couple of weeks is going to be climate change, and the other is going to be uh, artificial intelligence and the implication for medicine. So I'm very much looking forward to those to the educational Uh, aspects of this meeting and also the consciousness raising. With respect to their efforts in uh, climate change, one of the primary focuses is preterm delivery and miscarriage because it turns out for every degree centigrade that the temperature increases, the rates of miscarriage go up. And during the summer when we had those heat blankets uh, or heat domes over cities, we saw, a, we saw early pregnancies, we saw, uh, we saw miscarriages, we saw fetal lo- loss, and we saw 
preterm birth. An early and preterm birth definitely has an adverse effect on the child and can endanger the mother's life. So we all have a stake in uh, climate change, and medicine is looking at itself, taking a, a good, long, hard look at what can we do differently. Let me tell you a story about that. When I was first training, uh, when I would scrub in on a surgery, the the surgical materials would come to us wrapped in a kit. It would be a steel tray with all of these steel instruments and maybe a bowl with some gauze in it. And it would all be wrapped up in cloth. And this cloth would be sealed and wrapped up tight into a package. The package would be labeled with a marker on the tape. The tape itself had stripes that would change color when the desirable temperature and pressure had been reached in the autoclave so that we would be able to see, without opening it up, that the instruments were sterile, and we'd be able to see, and we'd have a kit with all of the instruments. In subsequent years, medicine moved to paper and plastic, and we lost the fabric, and we would put a little sensor would buy bags that had a little sensor in them, and they were convenient and easy to seal. And we ended up creating an awful lot of plastic waste. Syringes, believe it or not, used to be made of glass. I I told that to a medical student uh, who was rotating through my practice a few weeks ago, and uh, they said, really? Syringes were made out of glass? And I thought, wow, yeah, that is... Uh, surprising if you've never, ever thought about it. But what's important to realize is that we generate an enormous amount of waste and we need to ask ourselves if we really need to. We also are generating contaminated waste, that uh, contaminated plastic that then needs to be, well, burnt, right? We can't bury it. It's a, It's a health hazard. We have to burn it. That generates carbon, that releases carbon into the atmosphere. We, we need to think of a different strategies for medical waste disposal and for reduction of uh, excess medical waste. And when you talk about a hospital, one of the, pardon, sort of, it's not really quite a pun, but it's close, the low-hanging fruit uh, for this is the hospital cafeteria because, and also the meals that are served to patients. The sort of carbon footprint of a hospital is very highly influenced by what food it serves. So one of our problems is how do we change? How do we introduce change in a way that uh, is going to have traction essentially with the population? And starting in about 2020, a couple of hospitals in Boston tried to do exactly that. Uh, Brigham uh, and Women's Hospital and Faulkner Hospital uh, got together and made a pledge that they were going to reduce their carbon footprint by introducing more plant, entirely plant-based food choices for on the menu at the cafeteria. 
So they've tried a bunch of things over 20 years. Actually, Faulkner has been working on this for 20 years, trying to reduce food-related uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 25%. That's a big chunk. And the key factor is to serve less meat, particularly less beef. Uh, the latest hospital data shows that beef and the occasional order of lamb make up about 5% of food purchases, but represent 56% of the hospital's greenhouse gas emissions. We'll come back to Never Say Vegan in just a moment, but I'm going to pick up that call. Hello, this is Dr. Don. Hi, Dr. Don. Hello, how are you? Who I are, am fine. What's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, this is Gene in Pacific Grove. Hi, Gene. Well, I'm happy to hear from you down in Pacific Grove, and uh, I hope you're a regular listener, at least now, since we got that new transmitter. Oh, that's very good. Uh, what can I do for you today? What's your question? Okay, we talked several weeks ago about my brother, who is a Vietnam vet and had an incident that I won't go into, and both of his hands are numb. Uh so finally, he has gotten through to the VA that they can find a hand doctor for him. And I've helped him find who the hand doctor should be, where he lives down in Southern California. And they wanted, and the hand doctor wants to have a uh, Milo something or other for his hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, okay, so I know those electrodes and everything. And my question is, uh, my, can they do this? even though my brother has Parkinson's. Yes. Parkinson's is a central nervous system issue, and the EMG, electromyelograms, I think what they're, what they're trying to do, uh, is essentially the peripheral nervous system. In, in Parkinson's people, the peripheral nervous system is fine. It's the controller that's, uh, you know, it's, it's the guy who's operating the crane who's having trouble. The crane itself is fine. <laughs> And so that crane can lift and twist with the best of them, but the guy who's running the controls is a little shaky, and that's what happens in Parkinson's. So yes, the, it, it will be perfectly fine. It's not the do do warn him. It's not the world's most comfortable test. It's a little weird, and it does you know it involves electrodes and things. So he should take a couple of Tylenol before he goes in there, or acetaminophen, unless there's some medical contraindication. Because it just makes it go smoother. Okay. He takes, uh, I'll tell you how he gets to sleep at night, Seroquel. Well, Seroquel is an interesting agent. It has some antipsychotic and some anti-manic properties. It's often used for people who have PTSD, which it sounds like your brother brother might be getting it because of that. Uh, I think that that will not in any way interfere with the test. But, okay. you know, over-the-counter pain relievers, and I wouldn't use something that would be a blood thinner like ibuprofen, uh, which, you know, ibuprofen's the pain-relieving effect lasts about six hours. The antiplatelet effect lasts about 24 hours, and you're, they might be sticking needles in him, so let's, let's use the acetaminophen unless he's got really severe liver problems, in which case his doctors will have told him to stay away from acetaminophen and Tylenol. So they'll be able to stop his... He's got it in the hands. They're going to be able to stop his arms from shaking. I think they'll be fine. They will be able... It's kind of like... uh, If you can think back to the old television days when you have a little static on the screen, but you can (laughs) can still read and see what's going on. It's just fuzzy. 
Yes. So they, nowadays what would happen, you could think of the shaking that he's got as the static on the screen. Oh, okay. Okay, and, so I can tell him to go do this. Uh, you can tell him to go do that. That's exactly right. And I would encourage you to do so. I really hope that uh, your brother's numbness does not turn out to be permanent. They are wanting to look and see if he has some sort of damage to the cables. And that's what this yeah. test will reveal. Okay. Very good, because, uh, it, like I said, it happened from an incident. He was immobile for like two or three days, and uh, and it was, they had a, it was traumatic. And, uh, so. Yeah. Well, I think that it's quite possible that there was a squeeze, like a, a crush or possibly a vascular injury. They'll be able to see how good the signaling is and what the, in, there's an injury signal that helps them understand exactly what's going on. And most of the time, people do recover fully from, from that sort of, of incident. But it can take months. Yeah, as, long yeah, as, the okay. nerve, as long as the cable wasn't cut, it can usually regenerate. Okay. Fantastic. I appreciate it, doctor. You are very welcome. Thank have, you. Have a great day. And I believe we have another caller on the other line. I'm going to open up the phones. Hello. Uh, are you there? Yes, hello, dear Dr. Aline Smith, who tunes in most of the time if I'm not too preoccupied. Hi, Aline. It's good yeah. to hear your voice. What can well, I do for you today? I'm, I came upon, I can't remember how I got this uh, publication. I won't read it. Don't read the whole thing, dear. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a uh, spotty things that I guess I'd have to call back about some of the articles, uh, the, the subjects. But have you ever heard of Ariotic? Ayurvedic wellness. Ayurveda, yes, yes, I have heard of that. And And, uh, what question did you have about it? Well, is it valid, I wonder? I think that, like, you know, I like to call it the test of time. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're, uh, there are superstitions, there's like, you know, go and, go and, um, out under the full moon and bury a frog under a rock and your warts will fall off. And eventually <laughs> yeah. your warts will fall off. So, you know, that sort of thing will persist for a while, mm. but it doesn't have traction over <clears throat> over centuries or millennia. Now, Ayurveda and Chinese medicine have long-term traction because they have reproducibility in terms mm. of efforts. And so it's a different kind of science. It's like the science of the ancients predicting eclipses by watching the patterns mm. of the stars. And it's like, that's science. It's observation, lots of it, and eventually prediction. And then, yes, is the prediction correct? Well, then the observation and whatever method you're using to derive your prediction <clears throat> is validated. And in the case of these empirically validated sciences, you know, they don't have MRI machines and they don't have uh chemistry at the way, in the way that we do. Uh, so they don't have analytic crist- uh, chemistry or mass spectrometry. So there's a lot of things we can do, <laughs> messenger RNA, for example. But they do have time, and stuff gets written down, and over the centuries, you end up with a healing art. Now, Ayurveda comes from India mm. and the uh, South, uh, South Asian subcontinent, and it goes very, very far back, and they've had a written language for in a continuous culture for thousands of years, which is what it takes for this kind of science to really work. And it focuses, like Chinese medicine in many ways, on host 
resilience, on getting rid of stuff that is interfering with the maximum health of an individual. So both Chinese medicine and Ayurveda are more wellness medical therapies than disease medical therapies. Oh, well, yeah, that but, seems uh, obvious. But they do, just... yeah, but they do have therapeutics against mm. infection. They do have mm. other therapeutics. But quite honestly, you know, I would rather treat my appendicitis with modern medicine rather than mm-hmm. Chinese medicine, <laughs> but I would rather treat my asthma with herbs, if I can, uh, rather than steroids, which have, Apparently, a, you know, king, a negative effect on my bones over the over yeah, 20 or 30 the, years. The king of this is an MD, Jacob Teitelbaum? No, there is no king of Ayurveda. That is, that is he, there are a lot well, of, just, yeah. Well, but I mean, there are people okay. who have devoted themselves to it and uh, have a great deal of good information. Yeah, but, it's his publication. Right, and I I think that's that's really, val- I can't speak to him because I haven't yeah, seen yeah. any of his stuff, but Ayurveda is a thing. And, and I there think, is a local uh, place, and I was curious about it. And, I, well, again, I can't be specific because I don't I have understand. I don't have the information. But I just want to say, what, it depends on what you're trying to get done. If you feel yeah. like you have gotten yeah. a toxic exposure, yeah. you feel like yeah. uh, chronic fatigue, you've got pesticides, or maybe you've got uh, a, mm-hmm. a deranged immune system. Mm-hmm. Those are the you know, or you're just not right. And you've used, and Western medicine has come up dry. Then I think mm-hmm. going to mm-hmm. an Oriental MD or an Ayurvedic f- physician and getting an opinion is not unreasonable. Most of these therapies are completely safe. Let me emphasize that. I can't. Oh, yeah. I can't say that about conventional medicine. Yeah, uh, a lot of our stuff, biopsies, etc., have a potential risk. And, you know, that's why you have to sign that paper and do that in scary informed consent before we do anything to you. And mostly it goes well, but when it doesn't go well, we can't say we didn't warn you that it might not go well. And that's, you know, that's modern medicine. But it's very hard to hurt people with Ayurveda or with Chinese medicine, particularly acupuncture. But also the Chinese herbal medicines in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing are very safe. So, well, and let, you know, the problem with Chinese herbal medicines is they're coming from China. Sometimes they're adulterated. Yeah. We, have oh, to, yeah. we have to worry about unintentional contamination. And the same is true from herbal medicines coming out of India, actually. Mm. Uh, you know, these are, these are industrial countries which, are, uh, which don't have great aggressive regu- environmental regulation. Let's just, mm. let's put it that way. And so, you know, cl- Crops can get, you know, herbs can get grown in contaminated soil, pull up that contamination. Did you know that kale loves cadmium? And if there is any cadmium, uh, if like you try to grow kale, let's say, and your house used to belong to an artist who used oil paints and dumped his turpentine mm-hmm. out in the backyard and you're growing uh, kale in that in that mm-hmm. soil, you will end up with cadmium toxicity mm. <laughs> because kale likes to, you know pull all that cadmium out of the soil. And we use plants to decontaminate uh, Superfund sites for that reason. Mm-hmm. So anyway... Well, I don't take Medicare or Medi-Cal, but it's just for fun I took the forms home, six pages of inventory for them to have. Well, you know... Including, it says, request for a Ayurvedic medical astrology. 
you know, I I refuse to comment on astrology. Mm-hmm. I don't need anybody spiking right. spiking my tires. <laughs> right. One more thing, because I one more thing, dear. Was, I thought perhaps it was in a Middle Eastern name or an East Indian, but indeed, and I'm just guessing it's a female who's ahead of the area of the uh, the program, the the, the 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 kind of care that they do. Doctor Suhas. All right. You know what, dear? I think that's a little TMI. Thank you very much for the call. Thank you. Bye-bye. And let's wrap up on the Don't Say Vegan story. Uh, That's what they learned. They learned that the best way to get people to agree to non-meat-based meals is never say that they're non-meat-based, but instead say that they are the flavor of Asia or the cultural uh, celebration of, uh, let's call it, let's come up with an Indian holiday. You know that Indian holiday where everybody blows colorful dyes all over each other? That'd be a good one to serve a colorful vegetable meal at the, co- at the hospital cafeteria. And the fact that it, the, they have some marketing strategies, I'll come to in a moment, but just telling people that this is good for the planet and that this is the lowest carbon choice, low carbon footprint, this is the low carbon footprint menu item, that's enough to get people to try it because it's it's helping the planet and we're all kind of nervous about global warming. Uh, they also have been doing things like placement. So when you come across the cafeteria line at the hospital, the first option is the meat-free option. So eggplant parmesan first, and then next to it, chicken parmesan, and then next to that, whatever else you're going to serve. But that's an easy thing for them to make, and it increases the number of people who select the low-carbon option. Uh, They're also trying to just have more choices. So for example, the patient menus, right? You Patients will not pick the vegan option unless they're vegans, even though the vegan option might be better and tastier. So what you do instead is you offer them options. And so let's say you've been in the hospital for a week. The tacos have come through twice. You had the tacos with meat last time, and they were terrible. So now you've got, rather than beef, you've got your choice of turkey or black bean, uh, you're going to, so make, <laughs> ironically, make the meat dish less appetizing, make the vegetarian options more appetizing, and the problem takes care of it uh, itself. So, and getting creative, thinking of delicious, attractive, and novel foods, uh, teriyaki tofu and grilled pineapple wrap. Hey, I've never had that. That sounds good. And I'm really, really sick of the pasta and the potato salad that they like to serve at lunch. So I think I'll go for that. And that's how we need to think of it. And I'm just really pleased to see all the efforts that CMA is doing. Uh, I like this idea of having, you know, us all take the vow to have one 24-hour period every week where we don't use any um, animal products. Just, I'm okay, maybe some coffee creamer or something like that. But, I mean, if we just all 
did that one day a week, we would make a big dent in the uh, in the demand. And if we make a big dent, and we might learn something that we like uh, that we like and improve our own diet, because the more plant based your diet, the more the better you're going to do. I actually have time for one quick story, so I'll throw this out at you. A recent research looked at three diets, the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, which stands for uh, Diet to Reduce Hypertension, and something called the Neurodegenerative Delay Mind Diet. Uh, they looked. This was a meta-analysis. It looked at a whole bunch of studies, but basically what it showed was that there are there are a number of co- of compounds that, if your diet primarily consists of them, reduces your chances of developing dementia as you age. And it's the usual suspects, folks. Less meat, less beef, less pork, olive oil, and lots of it, fish, and lots of that, uh, grains and legumes, beans, nuts, seeds, And reducing the amount of processed meat, sweets, pastries, cheese, and fast food. So if you want to live long and prosper and have a healthy brain, stay away from the stuff I just mentioned. Processed meats, sweets, cheese, you know, a little bit. Think of cheese as a condiment rather than an entree. Uh, and again, highly processed food, fast foods. This should be your emergency choice, not your go-to. Really, honestly, get the salad. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or Follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.